0: or be present to win. Visit LampkinGuitars.com to scope out the Hemp Guitar giveaway details and entry form. You'll even find a video of what could be your guitar in action. L-A-M-K-I-N guitars.com.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to another episode of Everything Is Personal. And I would like to welcome a very special guest, To Ale Lindquist, who is the chief executive
2: officer of Floorworks. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Len. I appreciate you having me on today.
1: And and thanks for clarifying the pronunciation of your name prior to this, because I I always want to get it right, especially when people have an interesting name. So, name wise, let's start with that. Um, (laughs) What (laughs) what, background? Like, where did you grow up? Uh, You know, it's an interesting uh, name. So, I'm just curious.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I actually, uh, was born and grew up here in Portland, Oregon. Mm-hmm. Um, the name actually, uh, a little interesting and connected to cannabis, my dad, consumer and a musician mm-hmm. and, uh, was, um, uh, making sounds as he was trying to come up with lyrics for a song right after i was born and somehow the sound LA started coming out and it was like a light bulb went off and he ran up to tell my mother that we're naming me la
1: <laughs> interesting well it probably is better i don't know if it's better i won't judge it but it could have been ole
2: yeah no yeah go <laughs> uh right <laughs> <laughs> so
1: uh so you grew up in uh, in portland oregon and uh there. Do, you have, uh, do you have siblings?
2: Uh, yeah, I've got two sisters. Uh, they, you know, San Diego and Boston these days, but uh, they're both younger.
1: And uh, your parents uh, stayed together or divorced? Or-
2: uh, no, they got divorced uh, probably, I think, five years old. So uh, pretty young. And they both live here in Portland still. But
1: uh, yeah. So how was that? Uh, I- I'm a divorced father. So I'm just curious. How was that at five years old? How was that sort of? Uh, were you half the time with one parent, the other? How was it the whole transition?
2: Yeah, deep, deep questions. Uh, you know, it's hard to say. Looking back and try to find out. You know how how did something like that impact mm-hmm. the outcome of your life? Um, you know, I, I think definitely there are aspects of my behaviors or how i perceive things in the world based on that experience mm. um certainly things that maybe came up more in my 20s that i worked through and kind of try to evaluate you know who i was and where i was coming from and where i wanted to go um you know i i can't say any type of negative outcome from it because my life has gone quite well i feel like yeah. uh regardless of that and. Uh, Yeah. I mean, again, I think, I think it's deep to try to understand, you know, how these events, especially say, you know, four or five or younger, how those events affect our life uh, that happen at that stage, because we don't necessarily have strong memories to, to kind of reference for them. uh, But they have deep impacts potentially about how we perceive all of the things in our life. Yeah, absolutely.
1: I I agree with you. But so it, did do your dad stay in your life uh did you have that relationship
2: and- yeah no, I, yeah I, I had kind of a back and forth um you know yeah basically back and forth almost on a, every couple of year cycle uh kind of again they lived in portland so i could go back and forth relatively easy anyway um and then you know i settled down with my father Uh, in my teenage years and went to high school, uh, I did not, you know, my sisters, I was split up from, and so Mm -hmm. my sister lived with my mom and, you know, I would say there's definitely relationship aspects there that maybe, uh, didn't develop the same way they would have, um, if we had spent more of that time together, but you know, yeah.
1: So did you make the conscious choice to live with your dad as a teenager? And like when you were a kid, it was a quarter, let's sort of back and forth. I'm sorry if I'm asking the questions because no, I, no, I yeah, think that- I'm just trying to, I'm trying to, try to understand because I, I want people to understand that because you have a household, like my parents were together, still uh, together. doesn't mean happily married and all that stuff, but they just decided to stay. I got divorced and you know, I have a, I have an 18 year old daughter now and I, I want to. My goal was always to minimize that impact on my daughter. But there's ex, there's a lot of benefits that you can get from. I'm not promoting divorce or anything else, but I'm I'm saying that there's a lot of resilience. There's a lot of different aspects that you can take from that experience, draw on, and use it to propel yourself uh, forward in business or anything else you're doing. So I just want to let people know that they don't have to like victimize themselves and say, oh, it's because of this, you can kind of use it to build strength of character as well.
2: Yeah, no, I mean, being a victim of anything gets nowhere, right? Uh, So regardless of the circumstance, you know, it's embracing it. And, you know, for things like this that happen when we're children, you know, it's about trying to get into that and see how it affects your thinking of the world today. Uh, and how you perceive your own relationships or things that are good and bad and how things come in and out of your life and being able to just use that as a reference point for how you might want to adjust and change that. Uh, if it's not serving you, I guess. Right.
1: Uh, so I, I think you know, I, I stepped on my own question. I was saying, uh, I was saying that yeah, but
2: it was not court ordered. Yeah, uh, you made a choice with your dad. Yeah. Kind of a choice. And also just, I wanted to stay in the city and my mom you know, at that point, my mom had moved up to Port towns in Washington. Uh, and so yeah, I wanted to be in Portland. Uh, my sister had been living with my mom. She stayed to do high school up there. so it wasn't you know, I don't think a ton of thought went into any of this. It just kind of panned out. Got it. And
1: did your uh, both your parents either of them get remarried?
2: Uh, my father remarried and you know that was I think maybe married for ten years there together for fourteen and divorced again now. My mom has not remarried. Uh, she's got a long-term relationship, but just not married. Uh,
1: so when you were growing up, eh, what what did you want to be? Did you have this kind of vision no. of because uh, <laughs> I, I just tried to I asked that question because I would say I don't know, 80, 90% of the people I talk to don't end up being who they wanted to, you know, what role they wanted to pursue when they were a kid. Uh but there's aspects of that that end up peppering sort of their their path now. So I'm just curious yeah. uh, what what that was for you.
2: Uh I mean my my grandfather was a a business professor at the university here and so growing up words like entrepreneur uh were pretty heavily ingrained in me even if I didn't fully embrace or understand them at the time. Uh I look back and, and see that I had all this foundational understanding of something just to, you know, a foundation to engage with those concepts. Um, you know, I, I would say I had no idea what I was doing or wanted to do uh, kind of coming out of high school, you know, floated around college a little bit, testing out different things uh, really just didn't have a positive taste in my mouth around schooling in general. Yeah. Um, you know, I wasn't particularly well accepted into the school system, I'd say, you know, my learning styles and just, you know, I I would say I left school not knowing how to learn, honestly. And so it failed me on that front. Uh, And I kind of spent early 20s trying to evaluate, again, you know, grandfather stepping in and and trying to do some kind of book club, read books, understand where they go and how do they apply to what I want. Um, At the time, i actually was really into photography and I met my now wife, uh, in my early twenties there. And, uh, she pushed me and I just dove in and started doing commercial photography, uh, with that and, you know, worked my way through and started doing some cool jobs, mostly in kind of sports, lifestyle fitness. Uh, and you know, I actually was on a photo shoot, uh, for some yoga stuff and, uh, one of the individuals that was there, uh, was growing medical marijuana and presented this idea that you could go get a medical card and grow cannabis and, uh, yeah, life-changing event.
1: <laughs> for sure. But, you know, going back to, you said entrepreneurship and I want to, I want to touch on learning for a second because you brought up a really, really important thing. Uh, very similar to you. I mean, I went, I went to school. I was always told I was an underachiever, whatever the hell that means. Uh, I had ADD, so I couldn't really focus. Yep. I wasn't challenged in any way, and sometimes over-challenged. So my mind just said, nah, I'm not interested in that." And even reading books, like I always knew reading was a way that I could connect, but because I had ADD, I would have to read like several several books at the same time, keep going back and forth. But I found like auditory way. So I like uh, listen now audible or, or different things. So I was a different learner as well. And I think school doesn't really, there's no personalized school uh, yet. There, there are some mm-hmm. of the programs that exist like Montessori does something similar to that, but I definitely see that, you know, the, the system uh, can fail different learners, especially and this is sort of leading to this question. If you have an entrepreneurial Sort of a path, and you want to connect to that, but you also are creative because obviously, you know, photography—you have to be creative. There is no, there is no path. There is no real delta that says, okay, you know, you are, you're a business person. I'm going to teach you business, but you're also creative. It's like one or the other path. So how do you how do you take those two things? And I know that we're, we're going to go into the cannabis business, but how do you take the you're you're obviously have uh, you know a creative uh you know part of your brain that's that's activated from photography you also want to be an entrepreneur how do you bridge those two together and do you have guidance to do that
2: yeah uh i mean i i relate to the entrepreneurial process as creativity uh, expressing it right big time uh you know, I'm not necessarily out there looking for, you know, widget manufacturing necessarily and, and crunching margins in that type of business. I'm looking for, you know, what's cutting edge? How are we innovating? Let's think about what's not being done today and how it could be done better. To me, that's totally exploratory in process, right? And, uh, you know, the, the business side of it you know, i have crash course a lot of over, over the last 15, 20 years, uh, in terms of what skills were necessary and, you know, learned many things that I would say, uh, are fundamental to being able to translate that creativity and in entrepreneurship into function. Um, definitely there's a balance. You're not going to get away with not understanding how to you know read a financial spreadsheet right. <laughs> uh you know for example even if that's a little bit uh, mundane comparatively to you know a creative or artistic person's process of what they're interested in um yeah I, I think in my 20s particularly was spent a lot of time focused on discipline and just what is it where does it come from where does motivation lie towards applying your your energy to things um and through that process developed you know a a better way to apply myself to the things that were more difficult to learn or uh, didn't come naturally for example and you know so it was really just trying to explore that piece Mm -hmm. Uh, and you know it doesn't need to be a dominant skill where you can say, Hey, I can pick up this book on some topic that might be a little boring and read through the whole thing and understand it. Uh, you just need enough of it to engage with those parts of whatever is coming at you in the business world. So did you have to develop certain rituals
1: or certain things that uh, create a, uh, a system of discipline for yourself? And it may, if you did.
2: What yeah, are, what are uh, I mean, uh, you know, always testing different systems and, programs and you know i I definitely feel better when i kind of follow some routine systems uh but i started training martial arts uh in my 20s and um a lot of that inquiry came through that process uh you know translated down the road but that's where some of that early stage inquiring inquiring came from yeah
1: martial arts definitely will be helpful with that um so going back, you mentioned, you know, on a photo shoot and uh, medical cannabis, uh, et cetera. What was your first entry? Like you, you noticed this is interesting. There's a possibly a gap. There's a, an opportunity here. What did you do? What action did you take?
2: Uh, so, yeah, like I said, I, I got into growing cannabis just through an acquaintance that I made. Uh, got my own medical card set up my own little grow uh that was before colorado had legalized Mm -hmm. um you know initially kind of fell in love with the plants i've been consuming cannabis since teens right like quite quite a ways back there um but uh it was really kind of seeing Oregon legalize, mm-hmm. and, you know, seeing the writing on the wall there that I kind of just made a decision around where I was going to dedicate my focus and say, you know, in simple terms, I'm going to put my 10,000 hours into understanding the business of cannabis and how it's going to evolve, where it's going to go. And again, I'm just sitting in my attic office kind of at the time and, you know, there was very little of that type of conversation going on, uh, but just dove in and started to go look for that, look for other people that could see that, that were you know early kind of movers into the space. Um, all, of, all of that kind of led pretty quickly. I, I dove into cannabis extraction and started doing some machine building around hydrocarbon and CO2. Uh, but why
1: there. why why cannabis extraction? If you're growing cannabis, and uh, was there something that sort of sorry, pushed
2: yeah,
1: uh, to that? I'm just curious.
2: I mean, at the time, it was extraction was pretty new, the concept, right? We had Rick Simpson oil floating around as a as an idea of you know mixing some hexane with well, uh, well, yeah. Cannabis.
1: But when I was a, when I was a kid, like you know, a teenager and whatever, uh, dabbling in cannabis. What well, we our version of extraction was you take uh, the like a hair straightener, you put some like uh wax paper on there, you put some butt on there, you press it with heat and uh and the pressure, and you make rosin. Or we didn't even know what the hell it was back then, yeah. so that was that was our sort of version of that. So there wasn't any real, you're absolutely right, there was Rick Simpson, there was some
2: uh you know
1: Fico type of stuff, but there wasn't really. That problem. That's, yep. that's why exactly why I'm going in that
2: direction. Yeah. So uh, this was kind of at the very very beginning of CO2 extraction and hydrocarbon extraction going into closed loop systems. Kind of the dabables market uh, mm. was kind of emerging in the medical scene here. At that time, I had you know decent size grow operations, uh, moving selling cannabis to the medical market here, and there was just an abundance of spent material out there and so i just saw that as well i'm just gonna you know let's turn this into something um usable and uh you know it worked its way into the dabble space vape pens uh obviously supplying edible companies in the early days um pretty quickly though that just became kind of the focus and where i kind of saw you know playing in the supply chain side of this and um Yeah, focused in on just building that side of the business, slowly kind of shut the grows down. And uh, as we approached the recreational side here in Oregon, ended up getting the first recreational cannabis extraction license in the state and uh, built a pretty, you know, one of the larger extraction companies uh, at the time and had a couple of brands. So, um, I, I mean, you glossed
1: over this, but I, I think it's really, really important. You got the first extraction license. I mean, just getting that what, what what did that entail like the it was just luck a combination of skills and luck submitting for a license nobody else did it like how does that happen uh, i
2: mean uh they, Oregon didn't restrict licenses right it wasn't a lottery it was basically if you qualify you get it um because i had already been in the space we had already we saw it coming right and built a facility based on what we believe would be You know, all the specs for extraction from life safety standpoints and things, um, probably pretty far ahead of thinking in terms of what I was seeing happening in the rest of the state and for extraction. Um, And my other partner that I had come across in the industry after having kind of that, I'm going to put my 10,000 hours here, uh, I met him. He had been trying to acquire dispensary licenses or locations. And so running around, just looking at real estate and basically, I think he had the largest number of applications submitted for dispensary licenses, Got it. um, at the time. And so, you know, it, we understood kind of navigating regulations. We weren't necessarily trying to shy away from that. We were embracing it, you know, which wasn't necessarily the most common approach from the legacy side at the time. Um, you know, we went through some pain for sure, uh, in terms of regula- regulatory st- bodies here in Oregon and just differences of what County you're in, mm-hmm. uh, which made a huge difference in terms of what you dealt with first, not didn't have to deal with. Um, but yeah, I mean, just, we were there early and we already had a facility and we just preemptively got the things together that we needed to submit for that license. Uh, it, you know, other licenses followed pretty quickly. Sure. We were just first, right? It wasn't? Yeah,
1: I'm glad you cleared it up because different states operate in different ways with yeah. Yeah, different licenses and all that stuff. You said you build out a facility. Did you have to go out and uh, you know raise funds to do that at that time, or were you uh, you know? Just yeah, I
2: mean, from from the beginning days of looking at this more, you know, it was a not. Not that it wasn't a business in the earlier medical days because you're still but less less formal, I would say um, we raised small amounts of money in the early days, you know thirty grand here and forty grand there, just you know loan money to kind of get little pieces up and running. Um, we had access to a building which was probably real estate was a very difficult challenge in those days um, so You know, you didn't have your pick, but we had a good building to move into. Um, And we were already operating, you know, we were selling to the medical side. We were, you know, a first to basically make that jump and switch over where we kind of shut the facility down. We, you know, turn on all the cameras that they, uh, for the systems and we activate the metric tracking system. Right. And no longer were we on the medical side, we were on the rec side and we just kept moving forward. So. Uh, we self-funded our growth yeah. through just, you know, that it was a good time in the industry. You know, there was excitement. We raised, you know, money, uh, after that, once we were in the facility and kind of expanded, um, you know, raising money is difficult. It was a whole new concept for me to think of. Uh, it's probably the, one of the dominant things I do today, <laughs> uh, back then, you know, it's just, it was a new concept, uh, it's so, funny
1: that you said that, so I had a mentor uh, who told me the job of a CEO is always to be raising money. That's one of your primary roles. I was like, nah,, we raise money. we're good, but <laughs> he's absolutely right. that's that's primarily, I would say like eighty percent of the work that I do is raising money
2: and and relationships with investors and a lot of this stuff. So, yeah, you're absolutely yeah. right. I mean, it depends on the business, of course, right? You know, they all have different metrics for what you should be raising, how you should be raising, whether it's debt or, you know, equity, but uh, certainly with cannabis today and, you know, the trajectory and growth and particularly the science, which where we're at with FloorWorks, you know, the science is expensive. And it takes years uh, before you can turn that science into revenue. So yeah. it's a lot of capital raising today.
1: So before we jump into FloorWorks, I just want to uh, bridge this gap between you know your yeah. extraction business and what you did with that to sort of jump into FloorWorks.
2: Yeah. So uh, again, like I said, we were up and running. Built a great business here in Oregon, uh, trucking along. And in 2019, we we kind of got pulled into a merger and ended up exiting the company to one of the publicly traded companies. And uh, that, I mean, huge learning process uh, experience. That was my first kind of baby and in terms of entrepreneurship, having a business. You know, did you know not to discount the photography side, but a little different, just being a you know, contractor on that side. But, um, yeah, I mean, Oregon was difficult because they just kept putting out more and more licenses. And that was in the heavy days of investment and Oregon was one of the first States. So there was huge amounts of dollars being poured in here, um, which just drove insane competition. Uh, a lot of those businesses have failed or gone out of business or somehow consolidated. Um, we were kind of in in one of those states where we we thought that uh, it was a huge opportunity for us to expand to other states and bring our extraction expertise into this publicly traded company. And um, yeah, I mean, I, some luck, uh, some hard work, but uh, we were able to exit, which was, like I said, a great learning experience. And uh, I just found that you know I was more on the create something early side and wanted to kind of do something new and. I just started going out to basically look and talk with peers in the industry and, you know, kind of see what, what was new what thoughts, ideas were really cutting edge. Yeah, And, uh, some peers that I knew in the industry had raised a little bit of money and, and propped up, uh, a hemp facility that they were, uh, mostly just talking about, uh, developing a manufacturing pathway for making CPN. And, um, I, thought that that was an interesting idea uh, i I'd made some phone calls and uh helped help them raise some capital um mm-hmm. a, another ceo came in to run the business at that point and uh you know i jumped on board to try to help that for a few years and uh over that course of that after a couple of years the board of that company asked me to take over as the ceo uh that was two years ago now um, since then, I've just been focused on you know what do we do, what do we do well, and where can we where can we leverage that to go innovate in this space and do something that you know isn't necessarily being done ten or twenty times over. Um,
1: so you refer you refer to Floorworks as a, a therapeutics company, I believe. Uh, what is that definition to you? What does that
2: mean, therapeutics company? So yeah, in, in this course. First, you know, really recognizing that chemistry unlocks a whole lot of different potential here is, you know, it's one thing to extract something from the plant, uh, but a lot of those minor cannabinoids are never going to be in the abundance that you would need to extract them individually and isolate them or very difficult to separate and isolate. Uh, in the case of CBN, for example, it's a degradation product, so it doesn't the, the plant doesn't produce it enzymatically. And so it was really about creating a degradation process in the lab that you could accelerate that and isolate it. Uh, that was, you know, a huge kind of expansion of my thinking first, uh, you know, all these different compounds, can we create pathways to, to make them viable for research, I guess, in the first place? And then are they viable for treatments down the road at scale? Mm-hmm. That was some of the early thinking that led, led to Uh Since then, it's been kind of a... exert their physiological responses on the body is a wide open territory to understand. And I mean, there's certainly information out there, and, you know, but in the case of, say, epidiolexes, uh, it's not well known or understood how Epidiolex does exactly what it's doing. And so there's this idea and I guess that's formed for us at FluorWorks is we want to explore these mechanisms of action and start to build data points across ranges of cannabinoids to try to look for the differences in the structure activity between them, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, CBN doesn't necessarily fit that story exactly. Uh, you know, we, we produce many compounds and we screen them against different things right now. Um, you know, from the CBN standpoint, as an entry point for the market, we looked at that as, you know, can, can cannabinoids be effective for sleep? Uh, CBN potentially could be uniquely qualified for this outcome or, or creating relaxation um, being a close, close molecule to THC, but not having necessarily the same psychoactive effects. And, you know, let's just follow standard regulatory process with that already exists at the FDA for going through and getting, you know, approval for human consumption from toxicology research standpoint, as well as how do we get, you know, structure function claims for a cannabinoid in a supplement space. Um, which Mm -hmm. is what led to, uh, that the study that we did, uh, just over a thousand patients with radical science, where we have now shown that, uh, actually it was all three doses. We tested 25, 50, and hundred milligrams of CBN. Uh, but all of them produced a statistical difference over placebo, Mm uh, in, in supporting better sleep or, you know, uh, uh, less sleep disturbances. And so that's uh, potentially the first claims for cannabinoid as a supplement for treating any type of sleep-related uh, outcome in history today. Uh, again, small steps, but uh, that's what the industry needs, is just incremental progress toward towards these things. And especially with all of the uh, complicated or misinformation sometimes in some cases around the marketing and sale of CBD. I think yeah. we've kind of entered a space in which people are skeptical. And if we really want mainstream adoption, we need to address that by giving them you know, the evidence and the proof to build that confidence and trust uh, that we're not selling snake oil. To that population, right? So,
1: yeah. yeah, I mean, it's a great point that you bring up, and I'm familiar with the uh, you know, Jeff, Jeff Chen is a f- uh, friend, and uh, I'm yeah. familiar with the what you got what Radical Science was doing. Did, were you compared against other CBN products, or were you compared in the study against you know, other CBD products with possible CBN or possible you know, mercine or uh, things of that yeah. nature? H- how was that done?
2: Yeah. So no, the answer is no on that. Uh, the concept that, you know, I've had and the floorworks has is we need to understand things by themselves because this concept of entourage effect is great to say, but it really doesn't have any, you know, meaning behind it. Right. It's, it's more of a, I don't know which thing in here is doing this thing. So, you know, the entourage effect is necessary. What we were uh, effectively trying to do is just say CBN by itself uh, is producing this outcome. Um, we did, however, test against melatonin. Yeah. And, okay. Uh, yeah. The the fifty milligrams of CBN did work better than melatonin uh, at a standard dose. Uh, the most interesting piece is that the uh, twenty five and the hundred worked roughly the same. There's a little bit of a U curve there. Uh, you could say where you get diminishing returns or no improved effect from taking more than 50 milligrams. There was an improvement from 25 to 50, uh, but then, you know, not statistically huge difference, but there is a fall off to 100. So that concept, I think, was really intriguing in mm-hmm. terms of, you know, consumers. It's not about just selling as much of any cannabinoid as possible to them. It's about trying to figure out where things work the best.
1: What was the method of consumption for uh,
2: this study? So, our yeah, we were focused on the ingredient and being able to apply this to an ingredient. So, it wasn't a particular product. We put it into a gel cap, though. Yeah. So, so just so for uh,
1: first pass delivery through, uh, you
2: know, delivery. yeah, no special delivery treatment mechanisms in there, no liposome technologies, no net soluble, you know, not looking for fast acting. Yeah. Um, you know, so. What we look at is this was a baseline study for us to understand the current landscape of consumer anecdotal feedback on CBN, that it, you know, it, it's already in market, it's selling very well, it's the best performing edible category uh, mm. out there. Um, it's grown rapidly, it makes up huge numbers of sales for the companies that are selling CBN products. We wanted to be able to look at that and apply a baseline claim. And validate that anecdotal response. From here, when we think about where this goes, now you would apply, you know, what if there were two cannabinoids or three, yeah. right? Or what happens if you had, you know, and this is more difficult, obviously with THC, but would one milligram of THC enhance, you know, a 25 milligram dose to be more effective than a 50 or hundred, right? Yeah. It's like, you know, what happens when you start to explore that? Uh, you end up, though, with this cascading effect of how many arms do you need to perform in a study and how expensive are those studies. So uh, to date, it's really been, you know, being very thoughtful about the impact uh, that we can have with with the money that we have available to us to do the research so that we're capable of having positive results and can raise more money to do more research.
1: Yeah, no, it makes total sense because if you, I mean, if you look at, You mentioned the entourage effect and all that stuff. So, uh, like, for example, David Miri, Dedi, uh, who's an Israeli uh, scientist researcher, Uh, one of the things he does in his labs at Technion is he makes uh, um, machine learning models. And Mm -hmm. one of the things that he talked about, his number one focus is cancer, but he also treated other uh, conditions, basically in a Petri dish. But one of the things he saw that in apoptosis, which is cell death, you need three receptor binding sites. So, but for different people, different types of cancer, you have different types of uh, cannabinoid uh, up and down regulation that is uh, associated with, you know, that binding affinity. CBN is a, a whole different animal because it doesn't really have that binding affinity to a specific receptor. So you have a different mechanism of, of action on that, but you know being able to create a model replicate that model and also you mentioned you know method of consumption well if i'm a poor metabolizer it will affect me differently than if i'm a rapid metabolizer so dosing becomes extremely important method of consumption if i'm consuming sublingually versus first pass now i have a completely different experience it's very very complicated but i i'm a believer that machine learning will help us accelerate some of these uh, different uh, you know studies that we're doing
2: so, Absolutely. I mean, I'm, yeah, big believer in machine learning. We're currently working on, uh, you know, call it beta models to look at some of the data sets that we're developing. Um, some of the, you know, we've got a pretty significant size uh, data set on cancer and cellular assays against, and we've got about 18 or 19 compounds screened against the, the 60 uh nci 60 60 uh different cancer assays um again just looking at how do, how do we approach these data sets and actually go deeper with them um the other area that we're really interested in and focused right now is within uh dementia and alzheimer's and um the neuroprotective potential of cannabinoids mm-hmm. and screening compounds right now uh with an institutional partnership and in that process have uh, can definitely see there is significant differences in how these cannabinoids function, that some will have almost no effect on something, and some will have incredibly optimal effects. And that little data piece is what has now moved us uh, from that kind of discovery into this idea that we need to take these data sets, apply these machine learning models, try to uh, understand the mechanisms of these structures that are triggering this and optimize them uh, and go, well, it may not be a cannabinoid in the end, or it may not be a natural cannabinoid, but if we can understand how it works, we can unlock that potential and we can utilize these uh, pathways, these mechanisms in the body to to have really meaningful therapeutic outcomes.
1: Yeah, not one hundred percent, and it's so complicated. I think people don't don't understand the the plan is really complicated, and what you guys are doing is isolating the different molecules and applying that, uh, you know, through a scientific method to get uh, efficacy data, safety data, and all that stuff. Which is which is exactly what the FDA should be doing. Which you know that's that's a, a separate yeah. topic of, of conversation. But you also have individual complexities. I mean, one of the things my my company does is. Uh, We have a a, we have a DNA test, I know DNA, where we look at people's genetic predispositions to that. So you have, we're complicated. The plant is complicated. The method of consumption. What about drug interaction? What if I'm taking an SSRI? You know, you have that interaction. uh, That then you're introducing terpenes and you're introducing flavonoids. So I I think it's a smart approach to use the pharmaceutical method of stripping down and saying. Okay, here is a molecule. Let's go through and test this molecule for those three things, efficacy, uh, you know, safety and uh, and scalability, the same way that a clinical trial would be done. And then maybe let's add another that that's what GW was doing with uh, uh yeah. as well. They did epidilex and they did CyDax they they found out that there's a method, but also, you know, dosing. It's hugely important, and then once you get to a certain therapeutic dose, and you were talking about, you know, a CBN having a, a dose. Well, I mean, if you think about THC, delta nine has a very narrow therapeutic window too. So, if I'm an ultra rapid metabolizer, now I take not enough, and I'm not getting a result. Now I take too much, I have an adverse effect. So, finding out that that sweet spot, it becomes extremely difficult. Uh, but I think it it makes a lot of sense. And the segue to the question that uh, I'm asking because I'm trying to position you for a certain thing, this uh, Department of Health rescheduling suggestion to Schedule 3. How do you see that your company, if that really happens, who knows? There's been so many things. But Schedule 3, what that really means is, to me, my understanding is you can going to be able to prescribe Cannabis and actually get, uh, you know, cannabis is prescribed to you in a very similar way. How ketamine is a Schedule Three controlled substance. You uh, write a prescription for it. You receive it. You get administered somewhere. Uh, so, how do you see yourself positioned to take advantage of that, or do you think that that's not the way it's going to work? Uh, if you had a crystal ball,
2: yeah, I wish I had a crystal ball, uh, <laughs> but. Uh... I mean, it potentially is, is good for us at FloorWorks from the perspective that it, it kind of highlights the medical or therapeutic side. And I would say that, you know, there, there is some really interesting research happening out there, mm. but funding and overall awareness of it is relatively small. And I would say that the recreational market, the boom that happened and all the attention somehow this drug development cannabinoid side just got squashed underneath that yep. and no one talks about it no one really even contemplates. yeah it's very limited right that the, the people are doing drug discovery with cannabinoids from an investment standpoint the biotech's vcs are not looking at it right they're talking about psychedelics a little bit these days but certainly they've kind of just passed on cannabinoids uh, to some extent, and the rec market just kind of, you know, ho- is holding it all down today. Hopefully, the Schedule 3 kind of lifts, you know, put lifts everything, and yeah. everything gets the boom here, and, and we can get back to building the future of this industry, because we're a long way from maturity on all fronts, right? It's it's huge. Even just back to what you're saying, of the endocannabinoid system being different in each person, there's kind of two pieces, you know, if we can understand the triggering effects of the cannabinoids, the next step is to combine that to, you know, someone's individual cannabinoid receptor system. And now you're talking about customized drugs or customized therapeutics, potentially where, you know, you, you are looking at certain types of physiological responses and how they differ. And You know, again, it's just looking out way into the future. Well, it's the future
1: of medicine. Precision (laughs) medicine is the future. And if you look at functional medicine, that's really what you're doing. And maybe right now it's not individualized medicine, but we can get to personalized medicine and putting people in certain buckets, right? So this person, uh, you you know, they they have a genetic predisposition uh, similar to a thousand people that have taken. A certain protocol and have shown efficacy and safety. So now you plug in that machine learning piece, and you can start making better predictive inferences. Yes, it's not that you know individual is compounding. Like I'm not making my own formulation yet, which which is something that's going to happen in the very near future. Because you, I was at a at a conference and I, I saw that they were making uh, capsules with you know all your medication is in one capsule. And they already went through and looked at the drug interaction between them. I can get personalized nutrients today. So I take like all these different supplements, but I can get it all in one soft gel that's actually customized made for me. Yeah. So there is this path going forward, but I I couldn't agree with you more about the rec market. And I was a, you know, I was a person who owned dispensaries. So I the rec market. I have no issue with, you know, you're an adult 21 and over, go get whatever, uh, you know, you want to get. But this whole notion of as we started moving into as many concentrates, as much THC as 99% extraction, every single type of concentrate that you could want, we we moved away from this therapeutic uh, market of, having these different ratios. What if I want a one-to-one? What if I want a four-to-one? What if I want something like that? So we actually started moving away and the research started, uh, you know, kind of dwindling down a lot more. Even though they issued a lot more DA licenses, I think you hit the nail on the head. The money is not flowing in that direction. And, uh, and all of a sudden, there was this flow of money into the psychedelic space. And one of the reasons why I always thought it was uh, because single molecule, You know, psilocybin, psilocin, okay, you can, but cannabis is more complicated, so it takes a little bit longer. But I think isolating that what you're doing is uh, a lot more palpable for for even pharmaceutical to start understanding that. That's exactly the model that they use because when you start talking about, hey, you know, I have Alaskan Thunderfuck and I just made a rosin out of it. Well, I don't think that, you know, Merck or somebody else is going to be like, oh yeah, we're, we're going to invest in this. So I, I, I think there's a bigger separation that's happening in this industry now.
2: No, I mean, I can't, I'll, I'll butcher the company name and just where it came from. It was out of Israel though, and they were treating a child. Um, again, I, I want to say it was uh, pretty extreme autism or something and basically having mood swings and, and struggles and they started treating him with a 20 to one strain. And had phenomenal results. Uh, Somehow, something got screwed up with that particular genetic. They didn't have it, so they replaced it with another twenty to one ratio, and it didn't have the same effect. Uh, You know, anecdotal again, but that little tiny piece of data is really important. It's like you know, it it could be something entirely different than the one and the twenty causing that effect, right? Uh, That that we're that we're overlooking here. Uh, one of the other most interesting things in, that I've kind of learned in our process in doing this research is that there's more to it than receptors, is that, you know, there, I, I can identify two uh, studies now where there's a mechanism, a cellular mechanism of action taking place with the cannabinoid in cells mm-hmm. that has nothing to do with the receptor system, or, or at least no observable connection to the receptor system in terms of. Uh, which is super interesting because it means there's a whole bunch of physiological responses taking place, not just the stimulation of that system.
1: Dude, it makes total sense because if you look at Micholam's work on acid molecule stuff, there is no binding affinity for an actual receptor unless you decarboxylate. But they have a whole bunch of evidence on the acid molecule shown efficacy. Yep. So it, it definitely yep. makes uh, sense along the way. So you raise some money. In this difficult environment to raise money, maybe you can coach me. Nobody, nobody's listening. (laughs) Doesn't matter. On how do I raise money in this environment?
2: Yeah, uh, I wish I had the answers. (laughs) Um, I mean, so you know, I would say FloorWorks was a little bit of a turnaround when they asked me to take over. Uh, Didn't you know? Some of the ideas were there, but it wasn't cohesive. And, you know, the, the team was struggling to hold together. Um, so there's that aspect of, of trying to go raise money with that. So a lot of just focusing on getting the, the company dialed. I would say it took almost two years and raising that money to really feel like we know what we do, where we do it and what we're going to go do next. Uh, I feel really good today. Um, so it's hard for me to relate to my process of raising capital being difficult. There were certainly believers out there uh, mm-hmm. that heard what we were doing and, and just jumped in and stuck with us um, through, through that. Uh, honestly, I think it's about just applying, you know, marketing techniques, right? You know, build, build your database, build your list of potential investors. It should be big and, you know, go cold call cold email push it you know reach out to a thousand people try to get two percent of those to give you meetings yep right and then maybe you get two percent of the meetings to invest money you know i think it's a numbers game for one biotech is very depressed these days right is that that market is down on top of cannabis you know the cannabis sector yeah and so you kind of shove these things together and floorworks is stuck in what i'd consider a very difficult environment um you know, I, I'll I'll maybe uh, answer that question again in six months because I'm just about to go hit the road on another uh, another capital raise. I'm I'm that with way. you, brother.
1: I'm with yeah. you. I'm on <laughs> I mean, a- Series B right now, so it's been. A, and you're absolutely right about the biotech. You know, we're, we're a health technology company, uh, non plant touching or anything of like that. But it's that that connection to cannabis because all these you know, Canadian public traded companies. Uh, tanked, so there's there's a fear uh, from the investment side and biotech. On top of that, I, I completely agree with you.
2: And I, there's been a little bit of uh, you know just around Marinol and and um, when Canopy Growth bought that drug or that collection of drugs within the space for like I don't know three or four hundred million dollars and then went back to sell it when they were switching back to being a pure CPG company at the time and they couldn't sell it. Uh, very easily. They ended up selling it for, you know, a hundred million and took a huge loss on it. So then there, that, and some of the VCs I've spoken with out there, they look at that as an example that pharmaceuticals companies are not interested in cannabinoid drugs. Right. And so you get all all these different things. Investment is generally driven by acquisitions in the space, right. Is that companies are being acquired then people fund more companies to be acquired, right? That's where it really triggers, and nothing's been getting acquired in biotech or cannabis in any meaningful way for the last three years. So um, I mean, it took a year, over a year to raise that round. It wasn't a very big round, you know, just over two million dollars. Um, it was very specific for what it was going to go do on a couple projects. Um, you know, we made milestones throughout that raise that we didn't intend to make until after the raise, right? And so some of that help that we were just continuing to perform, um, you know, was able to get the company profitable for a period of time in that. So, you know, stabilized so we weren't under any type of duress while raising, um, you know, and just being able to show that discipline, I think, mattered. Uh, that we, we could be very disciplined with capital if we needed to, Mm. obviously with science, you know, you want to go and you want to do those studies and run it and it's expensive. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I'm excited to get out and raise capital in this round. We are a new company, uh, at this point than we were two years ago when I took over. Um, the opportunities that we have, the vision that we have is much stronger. So yeah, I'll give you a a new update here in six months. Let's let's, let's
1: go on the road. Let's do it together. All
2: right. So,
1: uh, question for you, uh, where, um, please describe your first experience, uh, with cannabis. (laughs)
2: Uh, (laughs) yeah, uh, maybe this won't be good some kids at high school offered it to me. I smoked it and skipped school and then started skipping school ever since.
1: <laughs> so I had taken you had a good first experience.
2: Yeah, I mean, okay. So the most interesting thing is I thought about this a lot in terms of, you know, building a relationship with the cannabis plant and how it's been in my life. Now, today, almost everything in my life is connected to the plant. You know, my well-being is connected to it. My you know, mental state is connected to it. It's part of everything, you know, it sustains me. Uh, But what I thought was the most interesting thing when I reflect back on early days is uh, the perspective shift that came with smoking cannabis. And, you know, though it might've been a little bit overwhelming in teenage years where I just, all this other perspective was, falling in on me while I'm high and I'm reflecting on all these experiences and going, well, they're not what I thought they were. They look totally different from this perspective. Uh, That fundamental aspect has been probably one of the most successful aspects of my life today is that I don't necessarily have to smoke weed to shift perspective anymore and be able to see things from a different angle. But it was cannabis that gave me the ability to see that things can be different than they're perceived to be. Yeah, um, that was a huge impact for me. I think. Yeah,
1: um, and, I mean, you, still- yeah, you answered my my question, my other question, Well, what has cannabis meant in your life? You kind of took it yeah. you know, in in a in a direction that that, that makes total sense. Such a, I, I love the way you said that it opened up your mind to different ways of looking at things. And then you don't need to have, which is very unique about cannabis, you don't need to continually consume cannabis because that portal has already been open or however you want to describe just,
2: it. Yeah, just like psychedelics, I mean, you know, LSD or psilocybin might be a much stronger uh shift in terms of, of reality perspective. Um I mean Potentially, I would say cannabis is probably the strongest psychedelic, that, you know, when you take a lot of it, it can be quite intense. <laughs> the, those early days of 300 milligram edibles in the market. <laughs> a thousand milligram edibles, yeah. A thousand <laughs> milligrams edibles, yeah. I mean, that was, uh, there were some, some interesting accidents that took place over the course of that uh, and some really interesting experiences. But yeah, I mean, you know, like I said, I'm basically dedicated myself at a certain point where I said, I'm just going to be here and build this. I don't know where it's going. I don't know where I'm going to go with it. I, I would say that I'd mostly just engage with what was in front of me. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't be doing this work in the drug development or science space if it wasn't for a phenomenal team of PhDs and chemists and thing, people around me. You know, My job is essentially to understand it as best as I can And translate it into business strategy and and be disciplined about where we deploy and what the outcome of certain science is going to be. And does it lend to, you know, some bigger vision or picture that we're trying to achieve? So, Be a much more qualified CEO for FloorWorks to drive it to the next level. Uh, some years down the road from here, or, you know, sell it to a bigger company that, that will take this torch. Uh, I look at this as, you know, we're, we're breaking new ground, we're, we're doing challenging things, you know, that's the role that I fill and play well. And I'm very comfortable, maybe because of the cannabis too, because, you know, when you get that shaky floor underneath you that you're uncertain that everything is what you thought it was. Uh, the ability to exist in the unknown space is where all the potential comes from, yeah. right is that yeah you you know the unknown is has much more in it than the known does yeah, uh, no, I agree so yeah being able to explore that has been critical
1: so uh, a couple of fun questions, and then I'll let you go along with your your day. I'm a big music uh, person I don't know if you can see behind me I have a bunch of music stuff yeah so um, I'll ask this question. Uh, if for next year you're listening to five uh albums so you don't have to name the, the name of the album you can just say you know i don't know stevie wonder or whatever it is this is a moment in time by the way because if i can ask you tomorrow maybe a couple of them will change but right now what will be your five albums that you would uh, choose to listen to for next year
2: oh man uh well one cannabis and music are great together obviously (laughs) uh i don't know if i can give you five but i can give you one right now that i think dominates all five for me and it's an artist teddy swims yeah Uh, Yeah, i'm familiar with him he's got a new album coming out here he's on tour uh right now I'm actually going to go see him when I go out. People should
1: really check out. I think it's YouTube. I don't remember what he does. Covers of different. He does a phenomenal yeah, right? job. Yeah,
2: phenomenal covers. Uh, his new album, obviously, he's only got the one single out. I'm actually going to go to his concert in Chicago here uh, at the end of September, and I get to hear the whole thing. But he's been uh, probably my top artist. Uh, and I'm excited for his album to come out. And uh, very I, cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm a. Partner investor and, and a cannabis soda company as well, and we that business is very much focused on the connection between music and cannabis, and trying to drive uh, kind of a shift in behavior from smoking to drinking beverages, but for more traditional cannabis consumers uh, versus you know kind of what I have referred to as soccer mom seltzers in yeah. the past, <laughs> you yeah, know like. Got it. The, sure. the new adopter story has been one of the big ones of all the investors coming through the space all the way back in the day as well it's all about these new consumers the can of curious yep i would say it hasn't necessarily panned out great for that play uh in every aspect of this space but uh, maybe someday there'll be a huge mass of soccer moms drinking and smoking weed but <laughs> let's see <laughs> we have to
1: normalize it all right so final question Please describe what your room looked like
2: growing up. Uh, my room growing up. Uh, so depends on what stage. Uh, I did, because my parents were divorced, I actually moved around quite a bit. And so I don't necessarily have like a specific room that I spent, you know, many, many, many years in. Well, uh, pick, pick
1: one that you yeah. think
2: it would be. Uh. Probably the most important was I, I lived in a, call it kind of a commune. Uh, it's called Brighton Bush Hot Springs here in Oregon. And it was a kind of a, a cabin built out of a park gypsy trailer. Uh, and I had a room in the back of the gypsy trailer, basically, uh, that, uh, that I lived in. And that whole experience was pretty meaningful. Just being in the outdoors and growing up with that was pretty pretty different. Uh, and I guess I value a lot of those you know pretty different experiences that I had growing up um, so it's maybe that room, you know the gypsy trailer room <laughs> super cool so uh, w- uh
1: where can people contact you? where can they uh, you know get engaged with uh, the work that floorworks is doing? what are some of your uh, you know contacts so people should reach out
2: yeah well uh workscom dot com is a website we actually uh, are going to offer the gel caps from the study on there soon, so people can get access to that, try them out for themselves. Uh, other than that, uh, my middle name is Sean Day, S H O N D E H. My uh, Instagram handle is Alay Sean Day, uh, and then uh, on Twitter at Alay Linquist. Uh, those are those are basically where I'm active at.
1: Awesome, brother! Thank you so much for joining. This was great. I had so much fun. So I really appreciate you. Thank you.
2: No, yeah, that was uh, was a great conversation. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows.
1: Hi, I'm Gary, and I invite you to discover the Cannabis Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on a Canadian's cannabis culture. I would be the Canadian and my cannabis passion and culture has been building for five decades. I share that passion for this wonderful plant in every episode through conversations with cannabis advocates and enthusiasts, stories about the ever-changing legal environment, and some hands-on testing of product in a segment I call Cultivar Corner. The Cannabis Podcast, a Canadian's cannabis culture, one token at a time.